0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Distinguished service
1: in the top tiers of three presidential administrations, uh, Roosevelt, no, no, um, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, uh, the deanship of two graduate schools of public policy, um, one of these being quite exceptional, uh, would be more than enough to fill out a very prestigious CV. Um, but Michael wanted more, uh, and he was capable of so much more as well. Uh, he's now added service as the chair of the public focus area for the Nuclear Science and Securities Consortium, which is a $25 million multi-university collaboration uh, led by UC Berkeley Department of Nuclear Engineering. Uh, something uh, he should be really proud of, and we should be all very happy to have uh, a man with that kind of service orientation involved. Um, I can also tell you Michael is an incredible teacher. His students love him, um, and we're just very, very lucky to have him in our midst. Um, You've got his bio, so I'm not going to um, steal his time, but we are incredibly privileged to have him here tonight.
2: Professor Knott. Thank you very much, Jim, and thank you, Henry and the board. It's great to be here, and uh, we've had a long day. I don't want to depress you. Um, Sometimes I have been accused of that. Uh, But my topic uh, tonight was originally solely going to be about some research I'm doing, and I will discuss that. Um, But because of what's been happening in the Ukraine with the Russians... Um, I thought I should say a few words about that. I did do an op-ed in the Chronicle that no one has read. Uh, uh, and the board was given that, but the rest of you haven't seen it. It's classified. Uh, so, But I won't repeat that, but I'd like to sort of give an update. That was published the day of the Crimea vote, which was March 16th. So it's a little over a month since then. Um, and by the way, I would like to make a brief comment about your, where was our student speaker? Yeah, Your remark uh, about how difficult it is to please parents. So even, uh, I I recall very vividly, even after I joined academic life, so I was actually about 30 at the time, I had a previous uh, uh, mini career in engineering. Uh, I remember my father sat down with me. My father was a small businessman and he was determined to learn what exactly what I did, same thing. And the punchline I remember was he said to me, so you go into an office, you sit down, you put your feet up on the desk, you read magazines and they pay you, is that it? I said, that's basically it. He said, okay, okay, I got it now. So I've been doing that ever since, and it's, it's a great gig, I can tell you. It's just fantastic. So a, f- a few words about uh, Russia and Ukraine. I mean, this is an educated, sophisticated audience who pay attention to these things. That's not true of every audience I speak to. You may have seen, by the way, a recent public opinion poll asking a cross-section of Americans, can you identify, can you locate Ukraine on a map I think the response was 19% could, which is higher than I expected. But then they asked people who couldn't if they could suggest places where they thought it might be. And three of my favorite responses were Utah, I guess because of you, Ukraine, Utah, Alaska, because they can see Russia from their house, you know, and Brazil, which I still don't get. This is, of course, standard for the United States. Uh, we love to fight wars where we don't even know how to pronounce the name. Uh, I'm not saying we're going to fight in Ukraine, but uh, the consistency of American lack of knowledge about foreign affairs uh, you know, was with us right till tonight. So, you know, very briefly, I would say the following. I served in the uh, Obama administration in the first term, and I followed closely the evolution of his policies. I still serve on one uh, Defense Department advisory committee and stay in touch and have clearances, and I get briefed and so forth. So I'm not totally a dependent just on the media. And I think it was clear in the most recent period that the president felt... Now, this is before what happened in Ukraine. The president felt that... Different regions presented different challenges. Europe was essentially stable and uh, a success story with all the many problems along the way and could be essentially downgraded as a national security uh, priority for the United States. The Middle East and the Arab world and the Muslim world presented enduring challenges but we were badly wounded by more than a decade of war in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were tired, the country had war fatigue, the country had no interest in supporting new military conflicts, and the country didn't even have that much interest in supporting diplomatic negotiations in the region. We were kind of fed up with it. Uh, it looked like, and it still may be, that the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations are not going anywhere the U.S. brokered called P5 plus one negotiations with the Iranians on the nuclear program remains uncertain. We had problems with the Syrians. Uh, there was a red line with Obama on chemical weapon use. They used them, then we didn't follow up for various reasons. So I think there had actually been a strategic decision made by the president to basically pull back from the Middle East and the Arab world and the Muslim world, not to not to get out, but to. Basically use diplomacy and occasional selected military instruments, particularly drones, with no boots on the ground, just to support our most central interests. Other than that, we were not going to play the role we had been playing. and instead shift to Asia, particularly East Asia, because East Asia is still where the economic growth of the planet is. East Asia is where the China rival is growing. East Asia is where Sino-Japanese differences in maritime and other issues could flare up to become very dangerous. East Asia is where the North Korean nuclear threat remains very real and is now led by a, uh, a government whose leader is uh, We had high hopes for him at the beginning. He was a Swiss-educated uh, North Korean, but he's been a brutal uh, dictator. As you know, he executed his uncle. He executed his former girlfriend. So uh, he keeps things in the family, but he also does things outside the family. (laughs) So this was, I think, essentially the plan for the second Obama term, and then now we have uh, Ukraine. And uh, I had had an opportunity in the Clinton years to serve, I was at quite a large number of negotiations with the Russians on missile defense and nuclear weapons, and I did participate in four summit meetings that Clinton had with Yeltsin. So I had a fair amount of direct experience with them. And I remember when I'd come back from some of these meetings, my wife would say, oh, by the way, my wife says, hi, she's sorry, I can't be here tonight, but on the other hand, she's heard all this before. Uh... Uh, my wife would say, so how would it go? And I'd say, you know, if you were going to sell these people a house, you wouldn't sell it to them. <laughs> uh, it just was no sense of camaraderie, no sense of meeting halfway, of compromise. It was very, very difficult. And if I didn't know that we were in the post-Cold War world, I would have thought we were in the Cold War world. These were in the good days, the halcyon days of U.S.-Russian relations. It never got better than that. That was the best it got in the mid-'90s. And we know, of course, that uh, Putin is a, not just a former KGB agent. He was a lieutenant colonel in counterintelligence in the KGB. The counterintelligence guys are the toughest guys in intelligence. They're looking for the guys who are spying for the enemy, Um, He was very effective at that, very smart. There's a whole gigantic dossier on Putin, which I won't... I can't, if I could, and I won't (laughs) bore you with. But there's a lot of stuff on him. And uh, he clearly was exceptional. He was recruited and quickly became Yeltsin's right-hand man and then succeeded Yeltsin. But he represents the wounds of Russia for losing the Cold War without a shot, The the sense of humiliation and the depth of animosity toward the United States fills several galaxies. It is total hatred, total hatred. And probably the only people that he would hate more would be Gorbachev and the Russian leaders who permitted this to happen. So for 20 years, they've been having to sort of lick their wounds— since the end of 1991. Uh, and Russia has tried as best it can to recover. Instead of, 100, instead of 280 million people, it has 137 million people. Instead of having 11 time zones, it has 9 time zones. It's lost a tremendous amount. But it still is, a, in my view, it's a great country, it's a great culture, and it has a great history as it thinks of itself. And it was just a matter of time before it would seek to reassert itself. My own personal view, and this is not based on any uh, explicit information I know about, is that Putin himself was surprised what happened in Ukraine, where the uh, Ukrainian president was forced out, fled the country. This all relates to the European Union business, so I'll skip over a lot of that. And, um, and ultimately uh, left Ukraine in the hands of these kind of pro-Western, pro-capitalist, not pro-crony capitalist, but pro-capitalist and probably pro-American figures. And this was literally intolerable. This was the last straw, I think, for Putin. And uh, Now going back to a bit of sort of armchair analysis, I believe that he and a small number of colleagues, by the way, the people who were actually in the room when he made the decision to go into Crimea, as far as we know, were all current or former KGB officials and nobody else. There was no one there from the foreign ministry. There was no one there from the economic sector. There were no pals of his other than these people. So it's very much a national security intelligence perspective on the decision. And I think they judged what we had said about the U.S. before. The U.S. was tired. The U.S. was war-weary. The U.S. has deep economic problems. The U.S. has political gridlock. The U.S. doesn't want war. The U.S. is receding. The U.S. does not have a war president. It has a peace president. It has a president who wants to reform health care. Uh, this is a time to act. This is a time to to exploit the weakness of the United States and a United States and and a European community that are much more dependent on Russia than in fact Russia or equally as dependent on Russia as Russia is on the United States. And he doubted, I think, with, I think, good reason, that the U.S. and the Europeans would invoke sanctions on Russia that would hurt the U.S. and the Europeans. And so far, he's been proven, proven correct. Uh, so we have this engineered uh, uh, takeover in Crimea. Uh, one of my uh, the most insightful comments on that that I like to refer to is one of the great strategists, I respect the greatest, David Letterman, who said, uh, you know, Putin says there are no Russian troops in Crimea. See all these people with these uniforms for that basis. Letterman said... Who are those people, mall cops? (laughs) So he's got mall cops everywhere now, (laughs) including in eastern Ukraine. And uh, what's the point of this? The point is that we don't know, and I'm not sure he knows, he, Putin, knows exactly how far he wishes to push this. Because there may be some sanctions which could be imposed and held That could hurt him. By the way, my understanding is there are 700 American corporations, major American corporations doing business in Russia tonight, 700, who, of course, are constantly pressing the White House not to impose sanctions because it hurts their bottom line. There are 10,000 German companies doing business in Russia, 10,000. And Germany is what, one-fourth, one-fifth the size of the United States. So the economic stake that Germany, which is by far the strongest economy in Europe, The economic stake that Germany has in not upsetting the apricot with Russia, even if they go take some Slavic territory, is enormous. And if Germany doesn't play ball, then Europe doesn't play ball, and the sanctions are not worth much because the U.S. can't impose uh, really, really effective measures without the Europeans. So that's where we are, and we're going to see whether... whether, uh, I'd say there are sort of two kind of views evolving in Washington now. One is that what Putin is seeking is a Finlandization, remember that? Some of you may remember that term. A Finlandization, a kind of neutralization of the former states of the Soviet Union. So that would be, remember, there are lots of them. There are the Baltic states, which are part of NATO. There is Moldova and Belarus. Belarus is sort of in their camp already. Uh, There is Ukraine. There was uh, Georgia and Azerbaijan and Armenia, and there were the stands Kazakhstan uh, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan and Turkmenistan uh, that 's the most benign Washington view of his aspirations Finlandization of those areas Finlandization meaning that he doesn 't have to do anything they know what he wants and they'll do they 'll do it in advance uh, the more the more Negative view is he wants to reestablish the Soviet Union and maybe even neutralize or Finlandize former allied states like Poland, Czech Republic, and so forth. Now you're bumping up against NATO, questions of the uh, uh, questions of security guarantees to NATO countries and potential warlike activities. This would be, of course, terribly dangerous and damaging should he move that way. But even if he brought troops into eastern Ukraine, there would be a reassessment and probably an effort to impose much greater economic sanctions. We could be in a very different place. So I don't know what Putin is going to do. I'm not sure he does. We'll know probably fairly soon because you can't keep 40,000 troops on such a high state of readiness indefinitely maybe 30 days, maybe 45 days, not much longer than that. And we're coming up to that time period. So we're gonna find out what the next step is. If the next step is some sort of ratcheting down, then this will it'll be unpleasant, unfortunate, but it will pass as a relatively, relatively not major incident. If he goes militarily into Ukraine, this is a big deal. This will change the whole calculation I talked about about Obama's priorities. So that's a snapshot of the current situation. That's the good news. Now, <laughs> now for the longer term. So, for the last couple of years, I've been involved in, and I'll take uh, questions and comments after this. We have till eight thirty or eight twenty. So, I'll, I'll only go for. I'll just give you a brief summary of this stuff, and then, you know, I've been teaching out at Berkeley sixteen years, and I notice in my classes I hardly ever get student questions only criticisms. (laughs) So I'm ready for your criticisms after, and corrections, of course, corrections. So a couple of years ago, uh, people at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in Livermore, 40 miles from here, uh, approached me about a project that they were beginning called Strategic Latency. And what... Fast forwarding, we have now, I've worked with them, we've now produced a book, and it's an edited volume, and it's the first time I've ever been involved in an e-book. I'm sort of out of date on this stuff, but I guess e-books are becoming more common. They wanted an e-book because they wanted to get it out, and they wanted compact discs to be distributed. So in fact, this e-book will be, I think, launched the 1st of May. So if we have your emails or whatever, we can get each of you, uh, an e- uh, A disc, and I can tell you if any of you have insomnia, this will put you out so absolutely put you out there 's no no one hundred percent guarantee you will get eight hours of sound sleep. Just cuddle up with the disc and you'll you 'll be out. So what are we talking about briefly in this volume we 're talking about technologies that can be Adapted for military purposes that could have a big effect on strategic relations between states. I mean, the one that we'd all know about, at least in theory, is nuclear weapons, right? And we had a terrible war going on in Europe. The Germans ultimately defeated, the Japanese were not defeated. The U.S. had a nuclear weapons program for several years, the Manhattan Project. It's world famous now. The U.S. threatens the Japanese, that terrible things would happen to them if they didn't surrender unconditionally. They refused, and the U.S. dropped two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, ghastly uh, acts, but an effort to stop the war and save a lot of American lives. So this was basically a technological surprise by the United States in war with Japan. And I think since almost all of us have grown up in that world we think, you know, well, that's it. That's the end of the story. There's not going to be anything to trump nuclear weapons or to do more than nuclear weapons. I mean, what more can you do than to blow up all these people or all these facilities? But the fact is that there can be technologies which could make an important difference in aspects of conflict. And you're you're familiar with some of these, too. You remember, actually, that in the early 90s, the U.S. revealed that we had... uh, we had um, stealth technology, that, which is basically specialized materials with some other characteristics that could be placed on missiles and aircraft that were invisible to radar. It makes a huge military difference if you have stealth technology or not. It can be the difference between winning and losing a war. In fact, by the way, radar itself played this role in 1940. Uh, the British used radar to alert their fighters where the Germans were coming in the Battle of Britain, I think from everything I've read and I've actually talked to some people about this, if the British didn't have radar in the Battle of Britain, Britain would have lost the war to Germany. And some of us wouldn't be here today. Uh, More recently, we have drones. The drone originally was an intelligence asset. It was an unguided missile with a camera. And a senior Air Force general said, you know what? We can put a bomb on this and blow people up. Well, this has become the weapon of choice of President Obama in attacking Islamic extremists, as you know, for better or for worse. And a lot of them have been killed. There's just been a recent major attack in Yemen just within the last 72 hours. So the point is that... Maybe the technologies can't be as profound as nuclear weapons, but they can be pretty important. Cyber, for example. One quick illustration. There is a country that was able to penetrate the computer networks of a group of U.S. defense contractors. And through that penetration, they were able to acquire all the plans all the detailed plans and manufacturing plans for a major new weapon system that the U.S. has not yet put in the field, okay? That country then built the weapon system we have yet to build, figured out ways to improve it that we have not yet figured out, and figured out ways how to defeat it if they were faced with them in battle. Now you may say, yeah, who cares? This could be the, the essence of winning or losing a battle or possibly winning or losing a war. It's a profound intelligence coup for the other country. So we're not living in a pacific world. We're living in a world of continuous, competitive assertions and ambitions by states, some of whom just want to have a good life and some of whom have very aggressive intent. By the way, this has been the state of the world for about 5,000 years. It hasn't changed very much from 5,000 years ago to tonight. There's some change of characters, but basically the same. So uh, we have to be aware of this, because if we want to retreat and let others come to the fore, you have to decide whether the world will be better with those people coming to the fore than with us paying the price to stay in the forefront. That's what this book is about. It's about a series of technologies and case studies of who's sort of developing what. It's based only on unclassified sources, so it's, a, it's an incomplete database. There is classified information, which is not discussed, obviously, in the book. It's about a series of technologies that have been given less uh, attention in the literature, robotics, uh, 3D or additive manufacturing, Um, laser technology for military applications. It's also about country case studies. I had a lot of fun. I co-authored two case studies, one with a Goldman School PhD student who graduated and is now at the Rand Corporation, Zev Winkleman. We did a case study on Turkey. Very interesting what Turkey is doing in many different areas. And I did another one with Carolyn Chu, who received her master's in public policy, and she's now working for the legislative Analyst office in Sacramento on Japan. There were several other case studies, including a terrific case study by a Chinese-British uh, analyst who's actually at UC San Diego, Tai Ming Chung, on the Chinese science technology base of operations and how they meld commercial and civilian applications with military applications, and how each is intended to serve uh, the other. And there are a couple of other case studies, and there's an introduction and a conclusion which I co-authored, and some other introductory comments to each section. I thought what I'd do now is read the entire book to you. (laughs) Uh, No, I don't think that's not gonna do that. So, uh, Jim has to leave. He told me he wasn't leaving in protest, but I think he actually is leaving in protest. Leaving. And, and what's the point, uh, the overall point of the book? The overall point of the book... Oh, by the way, I should make one additional point. This was uh, conceived in, with the support of the National Intelligence Council. So the U.S. National Intelligence Council is part of the office of the Director of National Intelligence in Washington, And they were interested in some new ideas on technology. And the point of this book is that it's not good enough for our intelligence community to just study what potential adversaries or even allies put into the field. They have to understand much more fully the whole science technology pipeline and philosophy behind what they're doing. Because each in their own way may be dreaming of a nuclear weapons breakthrough, of something major, which would completely revolutionize the power balance, either globally or regionally. For example, in a few years, Turkey is going to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Ataturk's uh, ascendancy to power, and there are many Turks now talking openly about the reestablishment of the Ottoman Empire. People have dreams. Putin has dreams about a greater Russia. Some claim he has a dream of being the greatest Russian leader since Peter the Great, who I went to school with back in 1714, <laughs> a long time ago. We were sort of classmates together. Uh, the Chinese clearly have dreams. The Japanese have dreams. Um, now, sometimes dreams are never fulfilled. But this is a way to get at some of the, under the technological underpinnings that could serve their Their dreams. Uh, The contact person for the National Intelligence Council is Larry Gershwin. He's no no uh, relation to George Gershwin. He is the senior technology specialist, really in the whole U.S. intelligence community. He's a Cal undergraduate in physics, a Caltech Ph.D. in physics. He spent his entire career assessing technology and weapon systems, originally of the Soviet Union and now of many other countries. And he's the sponsor of this. He wrote the foreword to the book. So we're saying be attentive. Think a lot about long-term technologies. Think about technologies that are not necessarily seemingly purely military but are civilian but could have a military application. Um, and that, that's what the book is about. And if you really are interested in this, we'll, we'll be happy to send you a disc. You could cherry-pick what, what you might be interested in. So I think that's, I think, more than enough. I think probably much more than enough. And uh, I'm now open to corrections. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot to look at my notes. but uh, I didn't have time to look at my notes, but I'll do that next time. So, uh, are you ready to leave and have a nice evening? <laughs> Doug. Uh,
0: I, I apologize, but I have two inquiries. Number one, it strikes me that the United States, if you accept that, the leading military power in the world at this time, since World War II and becoming victorious, but doing it on a, on a, a moral ground, Finds itself in the position that, when faced with situations like in the U- Ukraine, or somewhat uh, an international eunuch, and in that the to actually take on a full-fledged war um, because of the possibility that that will immediately become a world war is somewhat challenged to challenge those th- those uh, movements militarily, and has caused huge. Um, uh, diplomatic dilemmas and how to counter such an effort because of that and my other question has to do with uh, what you perceive as the role of anti-semitism in what's going on in, in the Ukraine I've heard people say that right now there's elements of Russia being more tolerant towards the Jewish community in perhaps an overt sense Ukraine, one of the most anti-Semitic countries in World War II. Um, we know about this, this pamphlet that came out. It's not clear who did it. What, which, which side actually can claim more anti-Semitism yeah. and
2: use that as, as an issue here? Okay, thank you. Well, on the first question, I think you were at, Doug, you were asking whether the fear that any use of military force could lead to general war is sort of, Deterring us from using any military force. So, I mean, on Ukraine, of course, we have no international legal obligation to come to Ukraine's aid. Ukraine is not part of NATO. We have no security treaty with them. We do have the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, which uh, maybe not all of you read again, but uh, (laughs) uh, which was a deal brokered really by the United States under Clinton. Uh, signed by the U.S., Britain, and Russia, which guarantees Ukrainian sovereignty in exchange for Ukrainian removal of its own nuclear weapons to Russian territory and also a promise of U.S. uh, energy and economic aid to Ukraine. Now, that memorandum was unquestionably violated when, Putin went into Crimea, because Crimea was, until a month ago, part of the territorial integrity of Ukraine, even if 98% of the Crimeans wanted to be part of Russia. And the fact that they assisted that was a violation of that. I think you're right that the U.S. is concerned about what even limited military force would mean in these situations with Putin, that's why you see some references to pre-World War I and pre-World War II in the open press. Hillary Clinton said this is like 1938 with the Nazis. There is a concern here that Putin could misread us and we could misread him, and the net effect could be an escalation that nobody wants and we could be in a bad situation. But I personally don't think that there's any likelihood the U.S. would bring any U.S. forces into Ukraine at all. I would say it's zero. It doesn't mean Obama might not change his mind and provide military arms to Ukraine, which he has refused to do, either defensive systems or offensive systems. Now, of course, actually in international law, we've got some great lawyers here, if you are providing arms to a combatant in a conflict, you are, you are, you are part of that conflict. Uh, so I think, in fact, U.S., military options of almost any kind in Ukraine are, on Ukraine are limited. Uh, options elsewhere are not limited, largely just to beef up the other countries, not to attack Russian territory uh, uh, or anything of that sort, as, uh, coupled with stringent economic constraints if we can actually get them approved by the Europeans. Uh, by the way, there's another angle to the Ukrainian business, and that is If Russian troops actually enter eastern Ukraine in a combat situation and even decide to move all the way through eastern Ukraine or all of Ukraine, they will easily defeat the Ukrainian army, but they will be greeted by a substantial guerrilla force which the Ukrainians have a long history of employing. It'll be bloody, it'll be indecisive, the Russians could even have a Russian flag in Kiev, but fighting will still go on. And I think Putin is also trying to decide, is is it worth it to him to do that? Especially if he thinks that the Western sanctions could ultimately bite at some point. Their currency's gone down, but there's already been some negative effects on the economy. The anti-Semitism issue, I think, is largely a pawn used by all sides. I mean, Putin has said, you know, he is the defender against anti-Semites. And some claim that, you know, the Jewish situation in Russia under Putin isn't bad, that there is no overt anti-Semitism. I don't have uh, enough knowledge to to judge that. Uh, I know that there are something like 70,000 Jews left in Ukraine after the war, and uh, one of the heads of the Jewish community in Ukraine had a piece that was in the press that said uh, to Putin, stop telling us, you know, you're here to defend us. We're doing okay. It's you that we're we're worried about. Now you have this incident of uh, Jews being asked to register and all that reminiscent of the Nazi period. I think it's just being used for inflammatory purposes to either justify a Russian involvement in eastern Ukraine or possibly by the Ukrainians to, who then attacked the anti-Semites to say, see, to the Americans, we need your support. I think it's a pawn. I don't think it's a central issue in this particular struggle. Yes, sir. What do you think could be done to strengthen our ability and the Europeans' ability to impose
0: economic
1: sanctions? <coughs> to impose economic sanctions, in the short-term, but also in terms of a long-term policy of containment? Is there a way to subsidize the the people? So
2: energy is obviously a key key here. And um, we all are well aware of the uh, oil and particularly natural gas supplies by Russia to Ukraine, to Germany, big-time suppliers to Germany and to other parts of Europe. And uh, therefore you know, it's incumbent upon the United States, especially if fracking with all of its environmental problems is as effective as people claim to get the oil and natural gas to Europe as rapidly as we can, but experts in the field say that it's, we're talking months or in some cases years. So it's not a short-term solution and that means for the Europeans, for the Germans to say we go along with these sanctions You know, they'll be okay through till October, (laughs) and then they're going to get kind of chilly. So there's a real reservation to do that. And, of course, that's part of Putin's calculation. So uh, it's ironic. You know, there are theories in in international relations about uh, economic intercourse and close economic ties reduces the likelihood of conflict. We do have a counterexample in World War I where there was good economic relations and familial relations, right? The British and the Germans were relatives and they, you know, 10 million people died after that fight in the course of that fight. So here I think you have economic connections, unprecedented for Russia, that will be used in a way to deter the Europeans from imposing sanctions on the Russians, which allows the Russians to be more aggressive so it's not you know you and i do business everything's fine that's the tricky tricky part of this yes chuck you spoke of the resentment of the russians to the dismantling of the soviet empire how much resentment uh, was there as a result of the efforts of nato to expand to countries Adjacent to Russia and to put in various uh, so-called defense programs in right. Poland and Czechoslovakia. Yeah. So the impact, if they, if they were uh, in a deep depression over the collapse of the Soviet Union, what about the expansion of NATO? Expansion of NATO was right up there, clearly. I mean, this is something that's an absolute anathema. Uh, to Putin and his... uh, And many, many Russians, I would say. Many Russians. Um, You know, it's just another manifestation both of their collapse, but also of the aggressiveness of the West. And, you know, uh, Putin has said... You may recall a few years ago in the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton made some statements during the presidential election in Russia and Putin accused Secretary of State Clinton of seeking to influence the outcome of the election and to participate in his overthrow. Putin accused her of doing that. Well, I would say he's not completely wrong. Okay. We would like to see a change in leadership in Russia. We're not going to do many overt things to make it happen. So it is a deeply adversarial uh, relationship, and all of this stuff with Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic and the Baltics and Romania and Bulgaria and Slovenia, all in NATO, is just beyond belief. I, When I was in the Defense Department, I had the opportunity to chair a NATO group. It was called the High Level Group, which uh, Uh, overseas nuclear weapons policy in NATO. You may not know that besides the U.S. and the British and the French having their own nuclear forces, there are still a couple of hundred nuclear weapons in Europe that are NATO weapons, but they're controlled by the United States. They're in five European countries. So I, I chaired meetings in Brussels with 27 members around the table and it was largely a small number of the major countries who, who had influence on these issues. And uh, they were very different in their views. The Germans and the Dutch and the Belgians would just as well get those weapons out of Europe. They don't want them there. This is, you know, 70 years after World War II. They've had a great ride. They continue to have a great ride. They spend less than 1% or 1.5% of their GDP on defense. Their security is funded by the United States, and they don't want to do anything that's going to upset the apple cart. There are other countries, Italy and Turkey, who have different views, and they're not interested in seeing those weapons disappear. So I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but it's a complicated story, but unquestionably Putin would like to see the NATO expansion roll back. So if there could be a kind of Finlandization of some of those countries that used to be Warsaw Pact members, of course, that would be a big plus. The problem is the Poles and the Hungarians and the Czechs are quite terrified of the Russians, are desperate to have American support, and both Clinton and Bush and Obama have each in their own way sought to bolster that support. And of course, you know, once the, you know, the NATO treaty says if any one country is attacked, every country in the alliance comes to their aid. There are 28 members of NATO. 27 were around the table I was at because the French chose not to play on nuclear weapons going back to De Gaulle. So we met, we met separately. The French had to... We met separately with the French. <laughs> French, you always have to do separately.
3: The, technology, the defense technology change of which you spoke yeah. has clear implications at an operational level. I'm wondering if you could speak more to the change, if any, at a political strategy level, things like deterrence and proportional response, Right. how that might complicate
2: it. So, yeah, that's a great question. So, the, you know, some of the points made in the book include the fact Just think of, sorry, think of the nuclear weapons example and think of how different it is now. Nuclear weapons monopolized by governments, done in complete secrecy, Uh, weapon of mass destruction. Uh, Think of what we're talking about here with cyber and additive manufacturing and lasers. A proliferation of players, most of whom are not governments. Technology knowledge all over the world Collaboration of all kinds of groups, government and non-government, together, separately. Uh, so it makes this whole question of sort of formal deterrence relationships much more difficult if not if not impossible, especially if they're a surprise uh, to you. So uh, a lot of the book wrestles with what's relevant from the nuclear experience to today and how much of it is not relevant. By the way, I should mention... Uh, I really only know this because I teach stuff about the history of the U.S. nuclear program. You know, most Americans like to think, well, by God, you know, we had our smart guys, we had our Berkeley guys, Oppenheimer and Lawrence, they came in, they developed it, we went to Los Alamos, we got the bomb, we defeated the Japanese, great. The, the truth is that it was the British who were in the lead on nuclear weapons technology in 1940. The British established a committee called MAUD, the Military Applications of Uranium Detonation Committee, M-A-U-D, and it was top scientists in Britain who concluded for the first time that the splitting of the uranium atom could produce a military weapon. The Americans were not there yet, had no advanced knowledge to the same extent as the British, The British were continuing in their work, various things were happening. In 1941, after the Germans were attacking the British, the British secretly came to the conclusion, we can't possibly build this bomb ourselves, we don't have the resources, we're under attack by the Germans, it wouldn't be safe, we have to tell the Americans. So the British went to Washington and educated the Americans about the importance of the weapon and then ultimately Roosevelt took it on and then the Manhattan Project. So there's no God-given law that says the U.S. must be in the lead, the U.S. must know, the U.S. must do it right, the U.S. must prevail. This is Hollywood. This is not reality. If the Germans had gotten the bomb before we did, the Germans would have used it, and all of human history could have been different. (laughs) I think that's enough for one night.
3: (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Michael. Michael's the ultimate realist. I I have to tell a story. is that my wife and I once had a lunch with uh, Michael Nocht, and uh, now I'm forgetting his name. The the guy who is the uh, person who believes that metaphors are the way to think about... uh, George Lakoff, sorry. And, and philosophically, Michael is, a, I would say, a materialist and a realist. And George Lakoff is philosophically an idealist uh, and, and a person who just believes that it's all about ideas. And this lunch we had with the two of them sitting there, with George saying, well, if we could just explain what liberalism's about, then everybody would be a liberal. And Michael's sitting there and going, nah, that's not how it would work. <laughs> and what I love about Michael is he truly is the ultimate realist uh, in, a, in a very nice, almost gentle way because of the wonderful humorous asides. But I think the message comes through that it's important to be a realist about the world and to think hard about what the real threats are and the real problems and real uh, things are that we have to worry about. So, Michael, thank you so much for being the ultimate realist. So that concludes our evening. Thank you for coming, uh, and just take a final look around and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.